I don't like to stream over people, and I didn't know Vox was streaming, but it looks like he just ended, so that's perfect. <laughs> so, did you tell Social Galactic? I, I told my Telegram channel, but I didn't tell Social Galactic. Oh, yeah. Tonight. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. post right now, and I okay. did kind of give so him warnings. Did you tell Social Galactic? Good. There we go. All right, perfect. So, we should be rolling. Um, well, the first question I have, if you want to start, and I'll send some notifications out, is I wanted to ask you two questions. Because I am Does your little... audience know who I am? <laughs> That's a good point. That's yeah. assuming a lot. That's a good point. Do you, first, <laughs> first, <laughs> silly me, yeah. First, do you want to introduce yourself to my audience? No, who I might think you could tell. So you could, I, I was introduced to a dinner table last weekend as the great Rachel Fulton Brown. Um, so, you know, you can, you can go on from there, right? If, if you, <laughs> I've been using the phrase legend because I think you're legendary and you oh, tell okay. you explain things that are legendary as well. Like you're not only a legend yourself, but like the topics you tend to cover on your streams is legends right <laughs> well to certainly tolkien's legends yes and and legends in the proper sense if you're going to get sort of medievalist on on you that a, a legend is that which is read right particularly say for example in the liturgy so that the and and things like the golden legend of the saints or the stories of the saints so yes we will talk about legends <laughs> <laughs> well and a historian and a professor yes i'm at the university of chicago which... And have been for probably longer than most of your audience has been alive. <laughs> I've, no, I, I've, I've been here since 1994. So it's it's been a fair time. I've got, you know, I'm old enough to be getting st students children. <laughs> really? <laughs> has that happened yet? Has that carried over that like generational gap? Um, not, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but you know, I've, I've long been, you know, old enough to be the, the, the parent of the students in my class, which, you know, since they're in their early 20s, 20 or 20 years, that, that tells you something, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what is it that you actually teach? I, I just oh, know okay. that you're we a want, professor. We want to have a serious conversation. <laughs> okay. Well, so, just real quick. Just, yeah. Like, I guess what, like, if I was to say you're a professor of, what would you say? Well, I'm in the history department and at the University of Chicago, I'm also in fundamentals and um, and I cross list courses in religious studies and medieval studies, history of Christianity. Um, I'm actually, uh, you know, it's sort of, I'm properly speaking a historian, but the kind of history that I do probably fits most people's sense more in um, like mythology, storytelling, imagination, poetry creativity so it's it i it, i should be in the humanities but who knows i do poetry right now i do poetry right now and to me to my mind this all fits within understanding you know how to think about the pre-modern because as i'm working in this poetry class right now we're talking about the way in which you know meaning is carried in symbol and illusion and reference and and so forth and that's, that's much more the case in the medieval period than in the modern period so i do history <laughs> love that i love that um sweet well anything do you want to like plug like anywhere people can follow you or find you or not to find you or follow you <laughs> Well, the best way to find me is go to Wikipedia, and that enraged you or entertained you. Will, will truly send you send you a link to my academic homepage, where I have links to both my professional work as a 
you know, historian, medieval historian, my books that I've published in um, the history of Christianity. Um, and I also have links to all of my public things like my blog, Fincy Barrett Prayer, and my Forge of Tolkien unauthorized um, series. And um, the, the most recent things that I've been working on, I said the poetry, right? My um, telegram group called the Dragon Common Room published our first book in March um, called Centrism Games. And this won't get, it will be funny, but it won't be light. It'll have to take a bit of explaining <laughs> to say what that was. Um, and we're, we're just now sending to press within the next week or so, our second poem, which is um, a bear poem for children, a, a quest for the light. They go to Antarctica. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the way I found you was, you know, of course, Owen Benjamin, right? So I subscribed on Authorized TV. And I'm clicking around and I'm clicking and I'm like, oh, uh, getting medieval on... <laughs> There's a whole oh. list. Getting medieval on, you know, Charlemagne. Getting medieval on, um, you know, basically like the whole history of like how Christianity spread in Europe. Just super interesting. And like, you just explain it so well. Like, you're just so lighthearted about it. You kind of cut through the crap and you kind of say the important things and tell the stories that need to be told. Um, see, I did a deep dive on that like last you year. You did. <laughs> so that's that's the other that's the other series on unauthorized. That's the medieval history series. Yes. Yeah. You know, then I've you know ever since then I saw your interview on Owen and like your you know your um, is it your channel or is it E Michael Jones channel where you did like those three or four interviews with him. Discussions, so I those guess, are interviews. those we posted them in Logos and History, which is my channel, the medieval history one. And um, there's also a stray one. Number four is hidden in the unbearables videos. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that one's the the horror one, I think, unless that's the St. Louis one. But it that it, those were occasional, and so we weren't quite sure where to put them. Yeah, <laughs> great discussions. I like how you have to keep pushing back and like, you know, <laughs> I mean, E. Michael Jones is such a profound complex man that you ask him a question and he just answers like 10 of your next questions <laughs> yes all at once. well and you have to keep pulling him back in like wait 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 wait. <laughs> let's get back to the question i asked uh... <laughs> yes but he's written very very long books and you realize once yeah. once you've written a book about something you've you've spent a good amount of time thinking it through and and particularly the way he writes his books right that they're you know if you read them they're that big yeah. and um <laughs> they're that big because he's he's finding every connection to the next thing and um, you know, talking about logos rising, right? That 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 rigorous, logical. You know, find the connection between each part of the narrative. He's he's absolutely brilliant at. It. I'm not I'm not sure there's any other historian working now that writes that way. Back in the day, they used to, and you know, back in the 19th century, you get or like the 18th century, like with Gibbon's Decline and Fall, which is you know, giant fat books. Um, that's really out of fashion in in academia right now. To do what um dr jones does which is go through every step you know of a story from antiquity to the present and not miss out the middle ages and not miss out the 17th century and you know give as much weight to the 13th century as the 19th he's he's really good yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely um well today is all saints day which you picked out which is perfect um because i wanted <laughs> that's a perfect First couple questions is, um, what is the whole deal with Halloween and what is All Saints Day? Well, All Saints Day was a feast that was um, first observed in the 10th century at Cluny. 
Um, it's it's kind of a problem, like saying when I was talking about the legends, right? The the the, the golden legend of the All Saints, that there are more saints that you know than we can celebrate in a you know in a calendar year in the um, Catholic festival list. Even by the 10th century, there are already too many. Um, wow. And All Saints was a way of saying we're going to celebrate all of those saints who do not yet have a, a special particular feast day. Um, and, you know, from Cluny, the celebration spreads gradually over the course of the next several centuries so that it's a it's a general feast um, observed. And and Halloween was simply the vigil of the feast. And in, you know, the, in the, the medieval, I'd say Catholic, but it, it just means in the full medieval calendar of saints, if you have a major feast day, you'll have the observance start the night before. The vigil, the, the sort of evening before, and so Halloween is just All Hallows Eve. It's the night before All Saints Day. There is therefore next to no relationship between it and any Samhain or Celtic festival or anything <laughs> like that. One because the the feast day, as it was observed in at Cluny, it, that's in France in Burgundy. Zero to do with the Celts. <laughs> it's it is nowhere no, no, nowhere near Ireland, so they didn't pick the day for that. It comes it comes in a use it comes in a in a good time in the Christian calendar to sort of conclude the the temporale. Uh, we say the the um, you're gonna get it technical here. There's there's two different cycles of feast feasts in the liturgical calendar. There's the sanctorale. Um, Oh, now I've gotten the backwards, probably. Sanctorale and temporale, which one's which? Mm -hmm. That's hilarious that I'm, I'm getting boggled. My husband is unpacking groceries right now in the, in the, in the, in the kitchen, and so I can, I can blame him for that. One of, one, of the, one of the cycles is movable because the main feast in it, things like Easter, um, tend to shift around because of the, the lunar cycle. And the other is, is fixed on the calendar days, right? And the sanctorale, the saints, See, I'm going to have to look it up because now I'm getting them mixed up. I'm, going to, I'm not going to, I hate when I get on camera and I make these kinds of mistakes. So I'm going to look it up. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries at all. No, I so said, you didn't tell only, me you were going to ask me. You only lose some me, cool like, points. That's the only technical, kind of technical liturgical <laughs> Right? Right off the bat. Okay. Let's get into it. <laughs> right off the bat. And, okay. There's cool points at stake. So you might lose some cool points, just to warn you. <laughs> Yeah, okay. The, tempor the temporale is things like Christmas and Easter, and the sanctorale is things like the saints. I was getting it confused because I was thinking, well, the tempore, the time that you go through the calendar, and the saints' days are on fixed days, right? And the holy year, the sanctus, the, the holy year should be the Easter. Anyway, I got them backwards in my head. Um, the, the, the temporale begins with Advent, right? Which is the four weeks before Christmas, or the four Sundays before Christmas. So it's a feast, uh, sorry, a fast. See, I've got everything backwards right now. <laughs> inversions, right? The inversions. Advent is a is a season of fasting, just like Lent, um, you know, that you have the 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays. In Advent, you have the four Sundays before Easter, um, but it's the like four weeks before, God, four, got me totally scrambled, Sean. <laughs> the four Sundays before Christmas, right? Yeah. And the the All Saints is, it's like at the end of the full year, before, right before you get to Advent potentially starting, right? And the, the, the calendar year, the Christmas season used to begin on November 11th, like St. Martin's Day. Again, it's complicated. All Saints was basically the end stop of the year. And so that it, 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 it takes, you know, it makes sense where it does in the calendar because you're about to start Advent and you're doing one big 
final feast to sort of recognize all of the saints. It's like you bring to the fulfillment of time all of the the um, you know the the heavenly citizens the, the the citizens of, of the heavenly Jerusalem, and then you're going to start back over with Advent, right? There's absolutely zero to do with any sort of Celtic harvest festival <laughs> stuff. Unless, of course, if you start listening to Owen, who claims that all of the Christian cycles are in fact to do with the seasons, and therefore we should be claiming that they're seasonal. Uh, you know, maybe yes, but that's that that's that's not going to help you with Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> well, correct me if and, I'm wrong. I don't, I, don't, I don't. I haven't studied this or anything, but I was kind of always led to believe that Halloween, you know, the whole spookiness vibe, the whole pagan, you know, whatever, was kind of like the start of darkness, like the start of winter. Like, that's when, you know, plants are starting to die. That's when you should be harvesting. And so I just kind of assumed, kind of like that. I mean, I, I guess I would fall into that category with Owen, where I'm like, I just kind of assumed All Saints Day was like, let's have a feast to celebrate the start of winter. You know, but like you just said, like, that's not, no, it's not actually it's, aligned it's, up at all. There's a there's a more practical reason to be able to honor all of the, and celebrate all of the, 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 the actual holy people. Um, you know, the, what, what's funny about it, I, I was talking to someone, one of my colleagues, and he was saying something about how, you know, native religions always used to be so much more in tune with the seasons. And I'm like, and you think Christianity wasn't? Right. Um, <laughs> and, or, or, I mean, for example, with the Marian feast, right? Those are some that the Protestants decided didn't belong. But things like the feast of her assumption into heaven on August 15th. Um, it was often, you know, celebrated uh, in, in medieval Europe with, you know, big, big bouquets of flowers and, you know, they garland the, the altars and everything. And you bring in grasses and, and you know, plants and things, and things like that. The, the, the ancient festivals in medieval Europe used to have a lot of, you know, agricultural metaphors associated with them. And it's, you know, it's modernity that one gets overly sort of symbolic and precious about those and that thinks that's silly. So it, you know, it, it depends. If you, if you really want the, a, a good book on these, the details of these ancient feasts and also the real paganism of the period, Ronald Hutton is your man. He, he's done, he grew, actually grew up as a pagan in the early 20th, the mid 20th century. And he's an absolutely outstanding historian of the pagan religions of the British Isles. And um, he, he did a book on witches and he did a book called the seasons, this, um, I think it's like Seasons of the Sun, but that's not it. Shadows of the Sun. Um, but he, he manages, because he actually knows the, the sort of modern pagan practices and the new witchcraft, not to feed back into the medieval and early modern practices, a lot of things that really weren't ever there. So Hutton. Awesome. Yeah, look that up. <laughs> I love that. And, oh. and, the, and, the, and when you ask me about When All Saints, is what I'm doing is I'm feeling guilty because I'm not... I, I lost track in my reading of Abbot Prosper Guerenger's 15 volume liturgical year, which I started reading last year around Epiphany or so. And, and I, I, I'm feeling I'm feeling bad for not doing my homework because I should have read All Saints Day today. <laughs> no, no problem. No problem. Um, well, can you kind of like summarize? <laughs> this is going to be a hard, hard, hard task. Can you summarize Christianity in the Middle Ages in like less than 10 minutes? Like, I'm really dumb and stupid, <laughs> and you're really smart and, like, intricate and detail-oriented, but can, like, you, it, like, inform a dummy like me, like, what's up with Christianity in the Middle Ages? <laughs> like, as simply as possible. Thinking. 
<laughs> you listen to all my lectures. You should, you should have a better beginning than that. See, but yeah, it would take me um, like a rambling four hours of nonsense for me to attempt to uh, <laughs> summarize your, your lectures. No, it's it's a good question because the student in like my history of European civilization course are usually saying things like, well, in the middle, of, you know, actually they don't do this typically that much, right? But but there are there are certain you know claims that people have about, oh well, the Catholic Church was really oppressive, or right. um, you know, it, it it all it alternates between the Catholic Church was really oppressive to um, nobody was actually really Christian. And those are the academics saying it, <laughs> right, yeah. right? That we, we do have, um, strands of the scholarship right now that, you know, want to show, there's a book called by R.I. Moore called the persecuting society, right? How from the 12th century Europe, Europe develops this clerical culture that is, you know, all about naming and, and excluding the, the others, like the, you know, the Jews, heretics and, um, lepers. For example, and and then there there was a, a strong school of particularly French scholarship, particularly in the 70s and 80s, um, the, at the beginning of my career, that was all about saying, well, the popular religion of the Middle Ages wasn't actually really Christian. You know, and, and, and if you if you follow both of these things, you end up with nobody was ever Christian anyway. <laughs> um, what what medieval Christians would have said, well, if you were at the at the sort of parish level say in the 13th century, you would you would need to know three things, right? You would need to be able to say the creed, which is saying the sort of description of the Trinity, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Um, the the Our Father, the, the prayer that Jesus taught the, um, the apostles to say, and the Hail Mary. Um, and that was considered a sort of educational basics for understanding, um, you know, how to pray correctly. And I'd say that probably does give you the the strongest sense of how um, people in the Middle Ages thought about Christianity. One, that yes, it is something you need to know. You need it, you need education and you need to know the story that you're living in and um, that it's, you know, story of creation. God created all of us. Um, human beings sinned. God became incarnate as, as Jesus uh, to save us from our sins. And he did so by dying on the cross. Um, we put him there on the cross with our own sins. And therefore, we should be thankful to him for the the, um, the love that he showed us in sacrificing himself. And he will be coming again in judgment to um, divide us out from those who actually served him properly and and those who um, maybe claim to have known him but didn't know him well. Uh, that you pray um, that that or you say the Hail Mary is out of a celebration of. The fact of the incarnation, right, and and the the way that um, people, the way that monks taught the you know so the delight in saying the Hail Mary is, it's the moment at which Mary feels the great joy of knowing she's going to be pregnant with the the Son of God, right? It's like the, the every time you say that it's it's she has the same um, joy that she had when Gabriel said it to her the first time. So you need to say it nice and slow, <laughs> and 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 attentively. Um, because she wants to enjoy that um, reminder that most of the imagery we have of all of those stories from the period is is famously very affective i mean particularly in the later middle ages it's very much a, a you know a desire to be in the story that you're meditating on and many of the devotions that they have 
both to Christ and Mary um, in the period are wanting to compassionate her, right? Both enjoy the pleasure she has. It's not pleasure, they say joy, right? Gaudé, joy, to, ha to, to celebrate with her the joys that she has at the birth of her son and to compassionate with her at the death, right? Her, the sorrows. And those are the two sort of um, imaginative streams that they develop in saying the rosary, both the joys of Mary and the sorrows of Mary. So I find, you know, medieval Christianity, it's it's very imaginative, it's very, you know, artistic and colorful and poetic. Um, it's yeah. very interested in understanding the, the relationship of the soul to God in love. And uh, it, you know, gives us these great expressions of, of beauty and joy at, like Chartres Cathedral. Did I do it in 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yes stopwatch yes <laughs> yeah i love um and i'm blanking on the name but you had a perfect in one of your um is it would you call it a lecture <laughs> one of your one of your videos or um podcasts? the getting medieval ones yeah the getting medieval ones were more luxury i mean the summer the 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 tolkien the tolkien series but you know it it was me like talking out loud to all of the questions and mysteries yeah. that I enjoy thinking about. Yeah. So yeah. they're not, they're not lectures in the here I have knowledge and I'm trying to, you know, tell you stuff. It's here are the questions I have and how I've wrestled with them and hopefully get you to see how I mean, studying history for the history ones that studying history is this process of reading texts, reading our primary sources, wrestling with them, asking them questions, you know, the, 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 the Tolkien ones are that wrestling with his creative process and trying to get to the point where we are enjoying the process of creativity and subcreation that he does. So I don't, you know, I see both, obviously both the study of history and um, the, it's storytelling, right? It's a problem of storytelling, yeah. a problem of imagining yourself into the, the um, moment, but, but, and the emotions and the, uh, making sure that you understand the both the intellectual and the emotional connections and things yeah and i love your style of presentation where like as you're speaking you'll kind of correct yourself you'll be like well and then you, you kind of under <laughs> you do a really good job of understanding like here's the facts but let me i got a side note i got a tangent real quick because people are going to perceive that weird or you know there's a common misconception let me explain that I actually really prefer that. I know sometimes people, maybe short-term memory or stuff, they're just kind of like, why are these little tangents happening or why are these explanations happening? But I like that you really catch yourself and you're like, let me really make sure this is explained well. Um, so that's well, I'm a, glad you enjoyed that because my, my, the way I think of it is I... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's no, my I side tangent and, about your side tangents. <laughs> side tangents. I talk in footnotes, right? Because yeah. I'm always thinking, okay, how do I know that? Yeah. And why do I know that? Yeah. And am I sure that I know that? And how would I test it? And that, that I, indeed, in the medieval history videos, I want you to understand that that's, we don't know stuff, right? We go in and wrestle with it. And, and there's, a, there's a wonderful metaphor in one of the commentators that I, I studied it for one of my, my first book, right? Rupert of Deutz. He's talking about, um, you know, going in and, and studying scripture is like Jacob wrestling with the angel. And, and you are there constantly, when you, you go in to read the scriptures, you're not, you, you don't go in and find the knowledge and come out, right? You go and you wrestle with it. It takes, it takes effort and, yeah. and attention to, to, to get there. Yeah, love that. 
But kind of just what you're saying that there, you had this great like dichotomy you were presenting of like Mark Twain's uh, Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and then something else. I'm blanking on what the other thing was, but it was kind of this perfect example of like the kind of two schools of thought when people today look back on medieval history, right? And it's like mm -hmm. almost kind of like they're both ignorant in a way, right? And they're both kind of missing it. But I think Mark Twain misses it more. And I like, you know, kind of grew up reading Mark Twain and liked him, you know, as like a teenager and male in America. But you really broke down like how prevalent those lies are, those misconceptions are about like the Middle Ages themselves and Christianity and like how those two played off and how we just kind of, because of Mark Twain and other people like him, we just kind of are like, yeah, everyone back there was like dumb and stupid and the Catholic Church was oppressive and mean and you know you should hate it and be so thankful that we live in these modern times with modern technology you know and you're just like no actually that's <laughs> not the case at all so um yeah, I'm well yeah which that's that was in, but that was a great breakdown i don't remember which video i was talking about that in but um it's connecticut yankee and king arthur's court and that so twain on the one hand he has this claim that the Roman Church brought slavery to Anglo-Saxon England. It's like our Britain, even Anglo-Saxon England, to Arthur's England, right? He, he the Connecticut Yankee lands in Arthur's England, so it's not Anglo-Saxon. Um, but he, um, you know, he has this the the, the Rome, the you know, the Church brought slavery. It's like literally the opposite. Um, although there was a major slave trade, and that may be how it showed up in that video. There was a major slave trade um, in from Northern Europe to the Mediterranean, pretty much throughout the Middle Ages. Um, and you know, including people that the, the Anglo-Saxons had been, were captured and sold as slaves, which is why Gregory the Great saw them for sale in Rome, right? And it was you know, blonde children, and he said not not ang not angles, but angels, famously. Um, and the other is that you know the Connecticut Yankee, he's got all the wizardry of the nineteenth the nineteenth century at his fingertips. Um, and he does he does things like set gunpowder in Merlin's tower and blow it up, and you know woo you know magic. Hmm. I was in fact just just thinking about that a few weeks ago with September 11th and watching Alex Jones talk about what he saw happening back in 2000 September 12 2011 2001 right back back then Alex Jones maybe had still had hair was definitely thinner but he he. Um, <laughs> Subtle bird. He, <laughs> you know, he's my age. I don't know how old he is, but um, he knew everything. He was getting it then, right? And then I realized if, if in fact it's a tower being blown up on purpose, the Yankees have been doing that for a while because that was what happened. That's what the Connecticut Yankee does. The narrator does in Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court to gain power over these ignorant Britons, right? He blows up Mar Merlin's tower. Right. It's in it's it's like in the repertoire of wizardry tricks, literally. Yeah. yeah. In our in our in our American story. So then I was just like so I put a post on the blog about that. You know, this uh, a meme about the, the towers being blown up and saying it I think someone's saying it looks like a, a controlled demolition and, and there's you know, there's the Connecticut Yankee doing it again. Yeah. <laughs> Connecticut Yankee. He's back at it. <laughs> Oh. You know where Yale is, right? Connecticut, Yankee. <laughs> so yeah, that was as closest I got to being Alex Jones for the day. <laughs> oh no, please don't. <laughs> he serves yeah, I like his purpose. My, I like my you know, hair. But please I think don't. I, I, yeah. Well, you he's you? you know he's in Austin. I I know Austin. Um, well, kind of similarly, 
How has Christianity shaped Western culture? And why do you think we are experiencing a breakdown of both in these modern times? Well, the Enlightenment is is the, the you know the biggest wizard trick that we are involved in right now. And the the you know the trick is, and it's it's a it's a funny sort of trick to say that all we need is reason. Um, you know, mistaking that you know reason is not affected by the fall as much as the imagination is. And and, and this I think I got from some reading I'm doing for the poetry class that. The, the Enlightenment and the philosophers of, the, of the, 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 the 18th century, they thought of themselves as, you know, transcending superstition. And, of course, what we've had ever since the French Revolution is, you know, more and bloodier revolutions over and over and over again for the, the cause of reason and the creation of utopia, which can't exist because of the name, yeah. utopia. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the, you know, this, this claim that we can use our... Um, you know, Promethean, Bach says, Promethean ingenuity to solve all these problems. I think it, it does, in fact, go back further than the Enlightenment. And um, my Telegram group, my sub, the subgroup of my Telegram group, which is, you know, I'm training as poets who are like willing to write iambic pentameter for six months straight to, to write these things. Um, we're, 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 we're working, we're working on um, a new poem called Draco Alchemicus, the alchemical dragon which is meant to show the way in which this seduction by science, um, it, I'm gonna say it goes back to the Garden of Eden, but it, the modern version of it goes back to the 17th century and Francis Bacon and his projection in the New Atlantis that there will be this sort of scientific, these houses of experiment where you can learn, you know, all the, the sort of natural, um, the workings of the natural world, including, you know, deceptions of the senses, like, you know, optical houses of optics and houses of, of you know, perfumes and tastes and so forth. It sounds like, you know, uh, it, as I say, an industrial test kitchen mixed with a, you know, university research laboratory mixed with the, with, you know, the alchemists um, workshop. And that comes at a time also when the Europeans are, of course, involved in the great spice trade because the Silk Road's been closed down across Eurasia, and so they've gone to the sea, right? They're, they're in the big maritime expansion. And in the 17th century, the Dutch become the richest group in human history. Right? Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a book by Simon Schama called The Embarrassment of Riches, and they, they definitely, like, achieve the embarrassment of riches. The, the Dutch East India Company owned, you know, more more wealth than most of the <laughs> group together, all of the, you know, like six or 10 biggest companies right now. And yeah. in 17th century terms, the Dutch East India Company had that kind of wealth and it was drugs, right? The, the spice trade, the, you know, the spice trade and anything like sugar, tobacco, rum, all one, it always ends up with human trafficking, slavery. And it's 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 always about mind-altering drugs. So ironically, the Enlightenment, which ought, you know claimed to be about you know reason and the development of science and so forth, is fueled by alchemy and and mind-altering substances. So it's basically all a, a massive pharmacological trip. Why are we there now? Because human beings are really susceptible to addiction. 
and to giving ourselves over to those kinds of pleasures and and um, we'll, we, we will willingly sell ourselves into slavery for it. And we've done it over and over and over <laughs> yeah. again. And the first the first time we did it was when, you know, the serpent says to eat, eat this yeah. and you'll eat this and we will be like, you will be like gods. And that has been the promise yeah. over and over. And so you can see, you know, human history is this perpetual falling into that kind of, of, of sin. And that is what Jesus came to save us from. It's like you, the, you know, I am the only way and you say, I am the way out of this yeah. enslavement to Satan. And there, you know, there I'm absolutely with Vox, Vox, Vox Day saying, you know, Christians, Christianity is the only path out of this. It's yeah. because Jesus is the only one who stands up to Satan's temptations. Man, mic drop. <laughs> yeah, that's like, a, I, it's so profound because it really, it, that's how it started and that's how it always has been, is people wanting mm -hmm. to, the phrase I've been using, which is like my mentor Bible study teacher uses, is the creator-created relationship, which was broken by the original sin. So ever mm -hmm. since it's been created-created relationship, like we worship ourselves, we worship the stuff, like our idols, our things. And that like mind alteration is so key because that's what it was. It was the pursuit of knowledge. It was the pursuit of something altering your mind. And that's just been the constant pursuit that leads us into choosing the created and not the creator. That would that's yeah. a succincter way of saying what I just said. Yes, that's See, like that's me fun. like a let me summarize this for, for dummies like me. <laughs> no, but that's, but that, that is, doesn't do that enough. That's good though, and that's for exactly everyone, you know? <laughs> Get, so getting everyone inside of this, you know, sort of being able to show them the way that this is working, that, you know, the the, the one, it's, it's, this is why we're doing it as a poem, this Draco Alchemicus, which realize we, and I did actually try to explain this when in the, the Owen intervention on the Trinity, we, we understand mysteries through stories like this. And I think another thing that happened in Christianity, to, speaking of today, right, because the, the, the um, great event of November 1st, was the day before um, in 1517 when Martin Luther on All Saints Eve, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, proverbially nailed his theses to the door, which was the, it was the base that was like where you'd stick up notices on the, on this chapel door. It's the university, like the university signboard, right? So um, he, he puts up a notice saying he's going to debate these things. And the reason he put it up on all, you know, Halloween on All Saints Eve is because the next day, Frederick, um, of Saxony was going to have the feast day of all saints and display the vast collection of relics that he had in the chapel. And there's, there's, there's Martin Luther, his university professor, whom he'd hired, right, to teach in his local university, um, saying, you know, all these indulgences and everything are, are a problem. Um, <laughs> that, that we ended up with the contrast between medieval and, and modern Christianity, say, uh, we were having a chat, we were having a little discussion in my chat um, the other day about, you know, wh wh whether or not the the Trent, Tridentine Catechism, the Catechism of Trent was better than the 1994 Catholic Catechism. I'm like, well, I, I, and personally, I'm like, well, I don't like either. I mean, I've read the, I've read the more recent one and I was like, you know, okay, you know, has the creed and stuff. Um, but the, the, the sort of thinking of Christianity is something that you treat propositionally by declaring declaring all of these things that you have to believe, which I did say, 
medieval Christians would know the creed and they'd hear sermons about it and so forth. But they they partic they they knew Christianity primarily through the liturgy, right? So me getting tangled up with the sanctuary and temporally, they would know the days of the year by what they did in church, right? How the the church was, you know, decorated, how what kinds of music they had for that day, you know, whether they were fasting before the feast or or you know, what, how how many vigils they'd had before and so forth. They, that they had a whole cycle of. Um, observances christianity in that sense is something you live it through time right christianity yeah. for most people now unfortunately maybe not catholics but and, and even for ourselves right you, if you you really know what you are as christians because you go to church regularly and you feel the year as you listen to the different readings and as you you know attend the different services um but people think of it as something that you um, you have to argue logically, and in, in, it, it is something that you can argue, argue logically, and there are logical reasons for it. But it should be something that we live liturgically first, and then maybe you have questions about why this and why that. But but if we have it as something that you are reasoning about without imagining it through the the worship services, you're missing the whole point. I think I got tangled up in that. Yeah. <laughs> no. I like that concept. I don't know what it's called, but like when it spans beyond the generations before and after you, like mm -hmm. I imagine in the past and correct me if I'm wrong, but like if you were going to a cathedral, like you were going to church for whatever celebration or whatever day of the week or whatever, you're going to the same building that like your super duper great grandparents were in. And you're right. also in the building that your super duper great grandchildren will be in worshiping one day. And then I also like the argument I heard, actually, shout out Coddington Bear, who made this awesome argument with me one time, that like Latin mass, we were kind of having like a semi-debate about it, where I'm, you know, I'm mm -hmm. like a Protestant, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, everyone should read the Bible, and it should be in whatever translation you want. I've corrected myself since then, but, um, you know, and he was making this argument for Latin mass, where he's like, if you're sitting there in a cathedral that's spanning generations far before you and far beyond you, and you're sitting there doing the same mass in the same language with the same tongue being spoken, the same songs being spoken in the same way that your super duper great ancestors were and your and your super duper great offspring will be. There's something like magnificent about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know the right word to put on it, but there's just so like a true beauty in that. Whereas like, you know what, then maybe I could just go home and read the Bible at my house. You know, maybe I can sacrifice like if I don't speak Latin just being there and experiencing the Latin mass where, you know, it's, it's crossing these generations that is way before me and way after me. And I'm just a moment in time experiencing that same experience. Um, and not necessarily like I have to be in my church planted, you know, <laughs> strip mall church, listening to a guy that I have to agree with or else I'll just leave and go to the next church over next Sunday, mm -hmm. you know, there's so mm -hmm. there's like such a lack of meaning and purpose in that, as opposed to, you know, the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox tradition in that regard. I, I agree with both of those things. So thinking about the the church that you you've been attending for generations, I I was talking in my Euro my European civilization class um, about the manner of all Walton, which is one of our regular texts to show what the manners are like, right? And this manor was owned by the Abbey of Peterborough. And we know that it was there. We know that this village was there in, you know, before 1066, 
it's it's it, we have records of it from you know, like before it, in fact the Norman Conquest and it's there in the Doomsday Book with a certain amount of property and a certain number of people working it presumably, it's there in 1279 when the hundred rolls are are um, written out and it's still there now, right? You see, <laughs> if you look on the map, you right. can see Albalton right outside of Peterborough and it has a church. I think the church is 15th century, maybe it's a it's a more recent church, but these settlements you know these manors are there for thousand you know a thousand years 2000 uh, 1500 years uh, so whatever england is is losing right now in terms of its you know movement of populations and so forth these are in some cases literally communities and therefore worshiping communities that have been there i don't even know how many generations that is right um when you were talking about the you know participating in the mass as it has been carried out for centuries. One of my friends talked about when he was received into the Catholic church and, you know, had his, when you're, I was received three or four years of uh, 2017, right? And you go up to the front of the church and you get the blessing and the chrism from the priest. And the whole, con the congregations are not in the round, like, you know, modern, my Episcopal church have been and things like that. They're the whole ranks of people. And my friend said, he had the experience because it's dark because it's Easter vigil and everything that you are up there and you are in a long, long line of people stretching all the way back to, you know, the last supper. Um, it, it's a, uh, yes, that feeling of therefore it's not, it, it's not even, it's not eternity because that's outside of time. It's this, this meaningful time that you're stretching in and you're in this place that, you know, we worship in not just, in this particular city or something like but we we belong on the earth we worship here here in this place and it goes back in time generations and generations that's love it's lovely meditation to to realize that that is the hope that we're carrying with us of the meaningfulness of knowing that god entered into time to become one to become one with us in this mystery yeah that's awesome that's amazing uh, <laughs> well, I got to ask you, um, kind of going into going off of what we were just talking about is what is Logos or Lagos and is it rising? Well, it, so the, the phrase is actually, is, is obviously quite powerful, right? And, um, yeah. the, unfortunately the rising thing, I think it's meant to have an, kind of an, it, it has the power that it does because it's an astrological reference, right? It's an, you know venus rising or capricorn rising or something like that and therefore you sort of predictive of the, the change of the heavens um you'd have to ask you e. e. michael jones in, in fuller version of, yeah. of what logos is uh i don't have in, three hours though to record his you response. don't have you don't have three hours and <laughs> you know it it he's thinking it through the greek word and in the medieval tradition you'd be talking about word right the verbum the the, the scripture the, not the well no the the incarnate word is is christ right he is he is and um i think about it through augustine because he talks about you know how difficult it is for god to communicate to us um at, comparing your own incapacity in language right it's like if you find something really hard to you understand it you have this this great flash of understanding and then the words just come out of your mouth in such a you know labored and 
time intensive physical way and he says if you're frustrated like that for example if you're a teacher of christianity just think what it was like for god <laughs> trying to communicate with us yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so much so that he had to again become incarnate so as to speak to us and you can just you know you can feel jesus in a lot of the stories going oh my gosh right. not again <laughs> right i'm gonna try to explain this to you guys again and, and we'll you know i'll tell you some parables i mean it's interesting you know jesus spoke mainly in riddles right in 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 stories of the kingdom which you know have to have some kind of flash of understanding and reference for you to see to to to, to be able to get grasp the mystery that that jesus did not speak in uh scholastic or aristotelian you right. know uh, scholastic quaestiones or aristotelian syllogisms he spoke in stories right yeah. so for me logos rising is it's less of the philosophical arguments that um mike makes in his book and more of the we are becoming aware of ourselves in story i think in very very powerful ways and that of course is what i've been focusing on all along that finding yourself in the story which is what augustine talks about is you know understanding yourself in conversion is understanding yourself in this story but if you think about, I mean, it, for us, right, if like you're listening to Owen um, break down stories and show the way in which they work on us and their magic. And if you listen, you know, Fox doesn't talk about it so much, but he writes them, right? Um, right. Finding finding meaning in narrative and history. I mean, Vox loves history. So he's always talking about history. And I'm working with Tolkien and I'm saying you need, if you're going to know who you are, it's finding your way through these stories that you are then you know jesus and mary right you're compassionating with mary as jesus dies on the cross that that is to me what the you know the the, the logos is rising it's it's our awareness of ourselves in these in these stories which is you know of course what we lose when we listen too much to the demons and they tell us things like you can make better machines and and escape all story <laughs> yeah <Right>. <laughs> you can uh use magic to make your own story and have the ending that you want yeah <laughs> not right the, but, not but, the but story we're, we're in, destined to live out but the one that god wants us to because he does he does you know mean well for us but he also means that we have to like pay attention to find ourselves in that story not just be like chess pieces that he's moving around right yeah right Although, if you want to get into a Calvinism debate, uh... <laughs> not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. But it um, I, it is interesting. It's like the 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 debates of the past. It's so hard when you're not in one presently to see why people cared. So it is interesting. I haven't seen an actual you know double predestination argument on the internet recently, mm -hmm. but it it is interesting watching how people are re sort of reinventing the history of christianity daily in, in on the internet because they're they are realizing some of these questions are worth wrestling with i you know my 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 dragon poets and i particularly my friend my friend kilts tend to default to go to mass <laughs> you know arguing arguing the logic of these these mysteries is going to just you know tie you up in knots you need to yeah. to, to go you know receive the lord right and it can potentially yeah. lead you away from god if you're thinking if you're getting trapped in your thoughts you know like your your own mm -hmm. understanding you're not relying on god it's your understanding right we're supposed to seek first him in all his right ways right and 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 you know what what my my great hero of 
medieval theology Anselm of Canterbury took you know took his motto from Augustine as well as faith seeking understanding right you have to you have to make that leap somehow first and that that was the big debate in the 16th century it's like how do you make that leap how do you go from believe, not believing to believing well who knows right that most of us who do have faith for example you know it's like I I you know become Catholic in the last few years but I you know been on my seeking journey all along and I don't I, I have no memory of not having faith um so I don't know where it comes from right I was baptized I have it and I I greatly sympathize with 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 Anselm saying well now I want to understand right I, I I know that this is right somehow by grace I hope um and I'm going to go test it and test it and test it. And I've, you know, spent some decades <laughs> reading around in the history of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So I hope I've tested it to <laughs> to appropriate strengths. But it 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 bears testing a lot, right? You can you yeah. can read a lot about the history and the debates and the you know the challenges and the crit criticisms and learn all about the corruption in the church and. You know, get, the further you get in, the more you say, like, yeah, okay, maybe the Pope's, oh, yeah, or, um, but the faith is still there. And that's, that's independent of the way um, people have or haven't lived the, the, the you know, we haven't realized the city of God on earth, obviously. Hmm. And, and, the, and the church is, as a teaching institution or as a praying or as a praying community, distinct from the individual members of its hierarchy at this moment or ever I mean, the, 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 there's so much there's so much power and money yeah. involved in in the administration of this worship community yes it, corruption is pretty much inevitable but you know find a human institution that isn't what is right. pretty impossible right yeah <laughs> yeah it's yeah that doesn't excuse it. It means we have to keep calling them out on their on their 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 um, sin. But it it does mean uh, humility in the face of our our. Um, when at some pride. point it's not our problem, like you're you're distancing yourself from God, your walk with God, if you're too focused on what these people are doing over here, or like things that are way above your authority. Like you were not put in that position of authority. You shouldn't be seeking to rebel against that authority. So I kind of, but then I, my nature is very rebellious, you know, like I'm like an Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like super duper Irish and English, you know, I kind of my, when someone tells me what, to, like something to do, they're like, go do this. I literally almost have the inclination to go do the opposite. <laughs> do this. Okay. I'm not going to do this. Don't do this. Okay. I'm going to do it then. Um, so I have to kind of fight Well, human leaders, I mean, I do think, I do think it's appropriate to, to test our human leaders. Absolutely. Right, right. I mean, and, it's just time and place. Yeah. I just think there's sometimes where it's like, I mean, who, who are like me or you to like question the Pope, right? Like we can have our criticisms, our complaints, but at the end of the day, like, I don't know, it's not our business. Like we're not in that role. Like we, God did not put us in that life, in that place for a reason. He put us here in our lives for a reason. And we kind of have to live our lives instead of trying to like dictate other people's lives. But I don't know. Then there's a fine line of when yeah, you're you... getting, you're getting, you're, you're getting, very, you're <laughs> I'm, I'm losing myself here. Yeah. To, the, to the libertarian, which, I'm which myself, as, 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 as one of my friends recently realized we were talking and, and the, this, 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 the flag of the libertarians is don't tread on me. 
Mary treads on the serpent. So I think we need right, to work yeah, right. <laughs> Michelangelo. If you're saying, well, Angel if you're Michael saying don't, <laughs> don't tread on me, you're basically saying you're the serpent. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I kind of, I, on one of my live streams a couple back, I kind of covered rebellion and kind of really got into that like concept of like, what is rebellion? And I think at the end of the day, like, if you're challenging authority and your heart is self-serving, then what you're doing is rebelling against God. But mm -hmm. if you're challenging like an authority and your heart is truly basically trying to seek God, like if there's an authority that is evil, <laughs> that's doing evil, and you're just challenging the authority because what you want is good to take place. I mean, I believe that's God calling you to take action against an evil, wicked power. But then that's just a fine line, too, of like, are you just, do you want to be in charge? Do you want your, right. you know, are you serving your interest in your rebellion against this authority? Or are you serving the interest of God in this rebellion against this authority? Um, but yeah, it's a heart issue, not a mind issue. <laughs> um I want to bring this up because this was awesome because um, my favorite movie ever growing up is actually apparently the same movie as yours, your favorite movie. Which one? Do you know which? Pop quiz time. You said this in one of your streams that this was your favorite movie and I was like, that's amazing. I've never heard someone say that because that's my favorite movie. Oh, gee, I'm not sure. You, know, you, you clearly studied my streams well enough. Which Stumped one would I you. send my yeah. absolute favorite movie? Stumped. Uh, well, it, unfortunately, I'm... Owen keeps doing streams that talk about things that were my favorite movies, and now they can't be my favorite movies anymore. So I'm not going to say. Which one did yeah. I say? All the spells are broken. Which, uh, they're I'm... all broken. I'm, I'm, I'm so disappointed. Um, a Knight's Tale. I actually grew up. Oh yes, that's that still TV. that's still yeah. one of my favorite movies. We can we can go with that one. <laughs> I grew up, and there's so many like little inside jokes. Like I always wanted Nikes when I grew up, just because that yes. one scene where they etched <laughs> the Nike symbol in. You know, it's like little right. things like that. But it was such a great like for me and my generation because I was really young when that was, like came out and was on TV a lot. Where it was okay. like it really made the medieval kind of theme relatable to me as like a millennial living and being, you know, born and raised in like the nineties and the two thousands. It kind of right. made it cool to like be a knight, you know? It wasn't just, ah, some old people used to do that. That's weird and stupid. It was kind of like, whoa, cool knights. That's awesome. Um, well, it was accurate. I mean, there were there, so, you know, wildly silly inaccuracies like follow your star and stuff. But the, um, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the understanding of tournament as a sport was definitely spot on, right? The, that there, we have manuals from the 14th and 15th centuries with things like the, the scoring system and that they, you know, they would expect to, you know, they would be horrified if anybody actually died in, in one of those tournaments. And that's why the armor gets so elaborate, which is why her in the, in the movie, her, her armoring and her swoosh and things like that are actually appropriate. Likewise, that, you know, they're trying to make it, you know, better and more technically proficient, not something that obviously you get it's so heavy you can't stand up which was stupid yeah. um there's a great there's a great video of um i think it was done in switzerland of a guy in armor in full gear like a firefighter would carry and one other and they're and they're running an obstacle course and then the guy in the in the armor could do just as well as our modern knights oh he's a soldier right so it was like a a soldier in full kit and a, a firefighter with his full 
oxygen tank and stuff like that and a knight and or you know guy in, in armor and the the lay medieval armor was well engineered so she that character is good i did look up we do have some evidence of female armor so she's not totally out of out of the blue um the way the way they played chaucer was was delightful and hilarious and particularly when he's naked after having lost his clothes gambling <laughs> yeah. i will you may i was naked for a day you'll be naked for eternity i will eviscerate you in fiction yes <laughs> that was great um and you know some some of the sillier things like and this is where the social differences that the movie makers don't get from the the period that when the baddie um Adamar right is bragging about being the leader of the free companies and I think I may have said this in the video that it, that's stupid because the free companies were the the ones looting the countryside so a modern audience should certainly not be you know um rooting for him he's not just like fighting the good fight for freedom or even in service of the king he's he's in fact ravaging the countryside and stealing but <laughs> I know, and and I also I also really I like the way they did the music, and I like the way they did her costumes as sort of modern yeah. high fashion. That was well done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that was awesome. Yeah, they they would just play it on replay on one of those channels like TNT or um, mm -hmm. USA or whatever, and I just would always watch it as a kid. Um, yeah, yeah, they played. They did. They played, did a good a good job with you know putting the rock music in in the right places and things. So. There, there was a lot there was a lot to really like about that movie um and I, I wanted to ask you um two two profound questions here um first is are we in the best of times or the worst of times both <laughs> man we're alive <laughs> i thought i could stop you is... with that <laughs> no that's dickens um and um i mean the thing is th 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 there isn't we would say this goes back to the Garden of Eden that humanity seems to get itself in these situations. I, I started reading um, Kovatis, and I can't pronounce his name, the Polish author. He won a Nobel Prize for it. Um, and it's set in, he wrote it in the 19th century, but it, it's set in Nero's Rome, right? And the main characters are, are going to be Christians. And I think the, I, I looked ahead because I was getting attached to characters pretty early and I want to know whether they, you know, whether the good, the good, good ones live. I think they do. Um, but the, the, the just absolute astonishing cruelty of the Roman emperors and the, the, the Roman um, citizens in their, in their day that, you know, their, their, their daily entertainment was going to these games where people would be murdered. Glad gladiators were, you know, trained to kill each kill, right? You, you know, they're slaves and and well, their property. And um, there's a there's a sort of throwaway line at the beginning where Petronius, the main character, which if you ever do Latin, and you you know got to the point where in your high school class you get to read the Satyricon, which we didn't because I was somehow not in the right class to read that, or Catullus. That they, that those those ones had more fun but um the satiricon fellini did a movie off of it which is like really disgusting and gross and, and strange um but petronius is the main is one of the main characters in Quovatus, and he's he's talking about um how many slaves he has and oh well you know uh it, you know it's a modest household I, I wouldn't be like you know one of those pretend nouveau riche to have you know more than 400 400 seems a good 400 slaves <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah. it, it just you know whatever kind of social 
uh, inequities and disruptions and such we have now, they're ours and we need, you know, they're wrong and they're evil, but it, it really isn't as if, you know, we're in the absolute worst situation. It's not like we're in an idyllic situation either. That, that's a problem. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, next question is uh, to mask or not to mask? That is the question. Um, masks are stupid. Sorry, I'm just getting a bunch of. Um, and happily, the Newsweek Newsweek just ran an op-ed by two of the. Um, this this was uh, this is actually worth putting in the the record so that we've said it today, right? Yeah. Um, Newsweek just ran an op-ed by two of the professors who have been calling out this nonsense most where did it go it's an op-ed against how how fauci has misled everybody um by harvard professor martin kuldorf and stanford professor jay bhattacharya um and um in in this they they point out all of the mistakes of policy and advice and and so forth that fauci has made and they include the fact that the masks have you know been proven to be completely pointless um you know certainly they are dangerous if you're you know breathing in your own your own exhalations at a, at a great rate and you you know end up with low oxygen count and breathing in your own bacteria and so forth what's interesting is now they become socially necessary because people are so frightened by having been fed the you know the, the statistics for the last year and a half and yeah. so sort of easing people out of them is going to be a bit of a challenge yeah. but it's it's very interesting because like in mass in, in in chicago going to st john cantius um the, the latin mass they basically just stopped paying attention to worrying about it and most of the people don't wear them when they go in it's a pretty big church so it's you know people don't feel cramped or anything the ones that want to wear them wear them and the ones that don't don't and i think you know as as with most things the the better response is out of compassion to um not try to force people one way or the other but they're dumb <laughs> yeah. yeah and and if only it's like it it, it does say that's like this newsweek op-ed was was really amazing because they they're talking about you know one that it was published in, in newsweek and it's how fauci fooled america um which is which is interesting it's like that they even put this in that newsweek even ran this is is quite amazing and um that well, they that they, makes they me... point they point to most of the most of the public um measures that have been brought out school closures and you know um well and they, they're saying the vaccinations the vaccinations were always you know, they make sense for some parts of the population who are very high risk and elderly. Right. Right. They don't make any sense whatsoever for the young, the young, and certainly not for school children. And I mean, it make, it's almost more harmful, more dangerous for them to take it. Mm -hmm. And they'd be better off not. Yeah. They'd be much better yeah. off not. The, the masks on children are just, are child abuse. Yeah. But and it just but, takes away yeah. emotion. I mean, that's like... Rush V explained it very well, kind of, well, I mean, last year when it was happening is like, wearing that mask basically tells people, it's telling each other, like, if you and I were both wearing a mask, like, basically, I would be looking at you, and I'd be like, you're my enemy. 
You're a threat mm -hmm. to me. And then you're looking at me and you're thinking, you're an enemy. You're a threat to me. So not only does it take away like emotion and smiles and compassion and that like nonverbal um, interaction that human beings like I think is so necessary, especially for children in their developmental years, but it also just instills this constant state of fear because you're looking at mm -hmm. other people like they're your enemy and not your neighbor, your friend, your family, your even just a stranger like that you could just smile at and wave and say, hey, how's it going? It's like you now look at each other like you're a threat to me, not just a person, not just like a person in my community or my family or my friend. Um, so, yeah, I think it has a lot of psychological, like you said, like, I think there's a lot of psychological damage that has resulted and it's going to take a while for us to, like, pull it back. Right. Well, and I did. So I did a, a couple of blog posts on this. Um, well, one post I did in October 2019, which was called Masks, Masks of Meaning. Um, and th I mean, this was obviously before the yeah. COVID thing started. Predictive and programming. I, you're in on it. Well, I didn't know. But, but the thing is, that I was already talking about the power of them, right? Because yeah. I was I was talking about some masks that Milo and I wore in a, a little play acting that we'd done the year before. And I was meditating on the power of masks. And I'd done, the thing is, I had done back in 2006, a class um, on campus on spiritual exercises, right? And I, I, I done I, in that in that class. I was we were reading classic texts, and then I was trying to do some exercises that, by analogy, would help people understand um, the effects of the the text. So there were things like the Yoga Sutras and Benedict, the Rule of Saint Benedict, and Gertrude the Great spiritual exercises and such. And and one of the texts was Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is is hard for modern readers because it's a personification allegory, right? Um, Christian, the main character, encounters you know, all of these personified virtues and vices and um, and an allegorical landscape and such. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how do you understand allegory, right? And I don't remember how I came up with this, but it, I, it occurred to me that it's like putting on a mask, right? It's 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 giving yourself this character that you then see the world through. And in order to demonstrate this, I I, I took uh, an exercise from a book on improv theater by Keith Johnston, where he's talking about the way he used masks in improv, like in, you know, theater productions. And they would take, um, they would have masks and some of them were, they didn't have any like face mouth cover masks, which is interesting. They had um, full, full face masks and half masks, which are just like your eye cover, like Batman, right? And he talked about how the masks that they used in this exercise would have the masks themselves would have particular characters and he learned this because the exercise would be the actors would pick a mask up just choose a mask right and then put it on and look at themselves quickly in a mirror right to activate it and then they would improv off of it and they 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 learned over time like certain masks had certain characters and it didn't matter who was wearing them and um Johnson talks in this chapter about things like trance work and the way these masks, you know, masks are used in all sorts of religious rituals and world religions, voodoo uh, or Yoruba religion, right? Voodoo is one of the words that we've used to talk about it. But you you put yourself in a trance and the spirit of the mask takes takes over, right? Yeah. And 
in this masked meeting, I was meditating on that and how, like when Milo had his half mask and he, I have a photo of him looking at himself in the mirror from when we were getting ready. And he's like, this is, this is the mouth that goes with this mask, which is exactly what the theater practice was, right? It's like you have these half masks and if there's a mouth, your mouth is free, you have to fit it to your, to your character of the mask, right? Which then changes your voice, changes your behavior, changes your, your sense of who you are. And, you know, like the Jim Carrey movie did that too, right? You put the mask on and you yeah. become whatever that character is. Well, we just did that for a year and a half <laughs> yeah. with everybody covering their mouths, not their, you know, their, their eyes or, you know, or their full, the full face masks, Johnston said, had an even different response that, um, I mean, those are the, like, the more tragic masks that the Greeks would use in their theater. Again, masks in a in a highly charged ritual trance context for those those plays. Um, so I was, I mean, I was actually obviously already thinking about it when it all started a year and a half ago. And then a year ago, I did a post to mask or not to mask. And I was just rereading it recently. And I was like, I was talking about most of the things that I've been thinking about since in that, these are on my Finsky Barrett prayer blog post. I mean, already, it was already clear to me then that most of the concerns that people are finally expressing now were were already there i mean yes i feel pretty <laughs> prophetic and i can <laughs> hey it's on the blog you can see that i was already writing about it i was yeah. plugged in just super plugged in <laughs> or tuned to the right frequency so uh, but the other one so i've been thinking about this you're the first one that i've i've, I've explained this to so there there um there's an episode in buffy the vampire slayer <laughs> um which is apparently the one that they got the award for like the emmy or whatever and it was apparently one that they did kind of on a dare because um they had been getting sort of flack about saying oh you know people just you know people are just responding to the the show because of all the repartee in the te in the dialogue right and so um whedon said okay fine we'll do this episode where they don't talk right <laughs> And, and so the episode is called Hush, right? And um, what happens is the the, the baddies, the, the floaty the floaty grin guys, um, they they're the gentlemen, right? And they sort of hover as they move through. They don't walk or anything. They just hover as they move through the town. They come and they steal their voices, right? They they in the night um, they take all of their voices so nobody can talk, which is strange of itself. But um, in the news coverage that they see um about what's going on in the town they get they they say we, we're not sure whether it's a virus or something and we're going to quarantine the town because we don't know why they all lost their their voices right <laughs> so they can't talk they can't talk they can't talk and of course that means they you know to like figure out what's going on they um have to like write everything out in sign language to each other and such and what the bad guys the floaty guys are doing is stealing people's hearts and i'm like hmm how do they, all these things go together? They can't talk. They think it's a virus, and their hearts are getting taken. Yeah. And the um, the resolution to it is that the the power of the gentleman can only be broken with a human voice. And so they figure out some way to get Buffy in the right moment. She's able to scream, and that um, you know breaks the breaks all the spells. But the I, I was I've been thinking about that with the like the. The loss of voice and and the you know it's a virus and such but then the, the 
that the vaccines are hurting people's hearts. Yeah, like that's physically, like, yeah. not just metaphorically. That's yeah. way bigger predictive programming yeah. even than I did. Okay, yeah. Justin, you win. And of course, he has yeah. entirely predicted absolutely everything with Firefly. So you know, yeah. go Wheaton. Even if he was a, even if he was well, even no, and you know, and also he seems to have been crap to his his you know female, um, whatever. Uh, fellow professionals. <laughs> um, anyway, but it, it, it is scary how predictive that particular episode of Buffy was. Yeah, I'm gonna have to add that to my list. I don't watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but that sounds like some serious gravy. <laughs> it's mainly that one. Ep- this one, Hush, the one, episode. one episode. And I've only gotten through. I've gone through like four and a half seasons, and and it was funny. I was I was watching. I hadn't watched it before i was watching it recently in the last three years and um i was watching season three in march 2020 and the the spoiler alert the um the conclusion is basically the the mayor turns into a giant um monster and eats the you know eats some of the people from the graduating class and i'm like that's it (laughs) (laughs) compared to having the entire world shut down (laughs) um yeah, it's it, it sort of, it's it's interesting how, you know, yesterday's horror is, is you know, today's, talk about best of times yeah. and worst of times, Today, yeah. today's, oh, I wish it were, I wish yeah. it were merely a monster. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we've dipped our toes in the water and we have adjusted. Yeah, <laughs> um. yeah we're, we're, we're at the, we're at the, at the next level. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the alchemists and the wizards have um, recently tried to censor your poetry telegram group. And this comes after many other failed attempts to just shut you up. (laughs) So I want to know, how have they not been able to get rid of you? The alchemists and the wizards? Yeah. (laughs) The spellcasters. Um... The demonic forces, however you want to, the, the grabblers, whatever you want to add, you know, the people coming. I after just you. showed you. Where are you watching? You can't see me, can you? Make the sign of the cross. Hail Mary. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, no, there's the reason. There's, a, you know, it's like she drives away Satan. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, practically speaking, you must not lie. Yeah. And and yeah. you know the the temptations to lie lie in small ways. I mean, so some you know wearing masks in social situations and you know trick. Okay, so that's a. I've had to wrestle with that a lot, and that's what the to mask or not to mask was about. Because I was trying to figure out, it's like I can't go on campus and not do this because it's in a social situation where indeed you know I tried teaching without it in a big classroom, giant room far away from the students, blah, 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 I got reported, right? And I'm like, okay, so at what point are you able to, I mean, we're, we're in the beast, right? And right. and I, I was telling you about the manner of all Walton and the the um, hundred the Doomsday Book and the Hundred Girls. Well, the, the Doomsday Book was so-called because in 1086, when William the Conqueror had all of his properties surveyed in England, his new conquered territory, he killed all the Anglo-Saxon nobility. Um, people considered it, it horrible, right, that he was going around and taking a census of the land. Um, likewise, in 1279, when Edward the I tries to, you know, make another census and, and, you know, sort of going around asking, by what warrant do you hold the land? People made an outcry. Um, 
you know, David in the Old Testament is punished for taking the census. I think the the feeling of you know being brought further and further and further into this tax tax keeping, uh, you know, health system. It, it's literally uh, this is where I mean it's like I I don't even know what's left, right? It's literally the origins of writing, right? You, the reason we have writing is because the you know back in the Conan the Barbarian days when there were you know the mud cities in the plain. Um, and the Sumerians and Egyptians and such are, are inventing writing. Some of the earliest writing we have is, of course, um, you know, basically tax records or tribute records or, or whatever. That like tax laws the mechanism, like property laws, right? The mechanisms for drawing us into the beast system are coterminous with civilization yeah. <laughs> yeah. so how how in fact and again box was you said we weren't live streaming now until now because you know when i interfere with his but he was talking about that tonight we are in we are in but not of this world and that's the the constant challenge right it's like the alchemists are going to promise you potions and magic and health and you know um gold right um and the the wizards are going to promise you power in, in terry pratchett's Discworld, right the wizards are the university professors and they're all always messing with the mechanisms of the universe um and to be able to you know live well in the system but not be of it is really hard i mean and the render unto caesar yeah. is is what jesus answered saying okay so give you know you give back to Caesar, whatever it is, is Caesar's. But yeah. indeed, how do you live of it? Uh, how do you live in it without becoming of it? Just start with don't lie, right? You just you can't yeah. you can't fake your way in it. You can't make, you know, don't make fake vaccination cards and don't make fake IDs and don't make don't pretend that you're going to be able to outwit it because you're not. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and 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 for the most part don't you know it don't um don't, and don't you know but on conversely don't give into the fear so that when you're talking to people don't make their fear worse right it, it, it really doesn't help to go in and try to frighten people like this is where the the compassionate side of the mask stuff is like you can't go in and frighten them out of their fear that's not going to work they're just going to hate you um, um you can compassionately care for them and hopefully gently lead them somewhere else Right. But, but you're not, so you smile. Right. And that's why you say that the not having the masks means that we can't in, encounter each other as fellow human beings. You have to not give into that and still behave with them like they're people. It's very easy to decide that the, the people moving around, around you aren't human. <laughs> yeah. It's quite terrifying, terrifying easy. Yeah. Well, I like that, like, um, I don't, you can't see it on my screen, um, but, you know, I put it on my, it's like my little tagline I use everywhere is faith, loyalty, hope. And mm -hmm. I kind of just call them the three pillars that if you base your life on, you're just guided in the right direction at all times. You can expand upon them, but it, and it's kind of a simple way of putting it. And it actually comes from my, like, family's, like, is it coat of arms? Mm -hmm. Like, my family phrase or whatever from, like, you know, England, whenever they were knighted back in whatever Whenever, it was King Charles the First was actually when my family was knighted, and then uh, 
I think they had to run after that. Yeah, he, he came to the end. I think it was like, yeah, finally, the family made it, you know, and they were... Oh, golly. <laughs> oh, no, uh, flee to America. Um, <laughs> so that's a whole thing. And then, um, but I just love it. Like, faith, loyalty, hope. Like, my, I had to look that up. Like, my family didn't instill those values in me. So this is like a recent, like, discovery. But I'm like... That is such a profound three things to base your life on. And mm-hmm. when you say don't lie, like that's loyalty. Like that's f- o- like fulfilling your contracts, obeying your duty to others. And yeah. I like the order that it's in as well because it's like faith. First and foremost, you and God, your walk mm-hmm. with God. Second, it's like your walk with others. It's like, what are you doing with others? Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Be, you know, fulfill your contracts, fulfill your oaths, be a good person. And the last one is hope, which you're saying like is despair. Like, Always have hope right. in yourself and in 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 your life and everything going forward. Well, in so God, just really, right? right. Well, right. Yes, but, but it's like the first and foremost is you and God. The next is like you and people, and then the last one's like yourself and your motivation for doing the previous two things. Um, I'm gonna do a whole stream where I break down my whole thoughts on all of that. But I just like that. Like you just, I mean, you covered two of those, and then. You didn't have to cover the first because it's kind of obvious, right? <laughs> but it's like, don't lie, don't despair, and trust God. That's kind of, you know. Right. It right. kind of is encapsulated. But none of, I mean, those things aren't easy. You know, it, I mean, we are given the grace for them to, to be possible. Um, it's very easy to, you know, for us to fall into despair. And, and you know, being able to witness to others so that they don't fall into despair is incredibly important. And, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, in, in, the, in the long run, you know, the saint. So this is the why I, I understood with the Hush episode, the Buffy episode, why the voice was so important. Um, there was a, a guy who's in uh, Professor in Ghent, who's does like a cognitive scientist, who was talking about hypnotism and the spells that people have been under. And um, I've forgotten his name, but he did some really good interviews that got sort of viral recently. And, and he's saying, you know, how do we fight this? And he says, don't stop talking. Right, you've we've got to, to keep, just don't get dis, don't get dispirited in despair, and think oh no nobody's listening. We must keep our voices heard at some level, because otherwise we can't break the this spell that everyone's under, and and sort of speaking speaking truthfully and speaking calmly and speaking joyfully. And it was it was good to hear him say that because it's very easy to get to this point. It's like nobody's ever going to hear me. It'll be like you know the Buffy characters like can't speak right <laughs> yeah the Vox right <laughs> right right um can can you finish this sentence for me this is a fun game fun game I like to play on my stream can you finish this sentence for me Hail Mary full of grace. Lord is with you. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Oh, you're right, but you're wrong at the same time. Hail Mary, full of grace, punch the devil in the face. Awesome. Yeah, that's more good. I can clip that now going forward. Uh. I use it as a sticker in my telegram. You know very well that. And and so the sticker, the sticker in the telegram, Hail Mary, full of grace, punch the devil in the face. It comes. Yeah. It's it's a manuscript. It's British Library four nine 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 nine. That's right, number nine. It's a book called the Debrail Book of Hours, and it's the oldest book of hours copied in England. It was made in Oxford in the 1230s or 40s. 
um, for a woman, Joanna, probably. And the picture comes from the uh, Miracle of, it comes from Lodz and it, uh, the Office of Lodz, and it's the Miracle of Theophilus, which is when um, Theophilus has um, sold his soul to the devil, sold his loyalty to the devil, because, like sworn himself over to the devil. And the devil's given a contract. Don't take contracts. The period. Now I've I've also gotten to the point where I realize all contracts, all terms and conditions are are yeah. you know the devil. Yeah. Um, anyway, he, he he because he wanted his old job back, right? He he didn't want to be bishop, and that was okay. Then a new bishop came in and took the job that he had had, and he goes and you know signs his soul over to the devil. And then he realizes what he's done, and so he's penitent for forty days. At which point Mary appears to him in the church and says, you know. You, you're forgiven and he's like but i can't i still have this contract and she's like okay but you're forgiven and he's like i still have that contract and she's like, okay fine so she goes and gets the contract from the devil and um, um brings it back and he goes to the bishop confesses his sins dies three days later but you know forgiven now and and so it, what's funny about it is the contract never mattered right it's right, right yeah <laughs> And yet it is the it is the scene that is fun to illustrate, right? There we have a number of illustrations of that from the period. Because she, you know, she's punching the devil and she's grabbing <laughs> she's grabbing the, the, the contract because the see the in the sticker you can see the seal or the the manuscript illumination, you can see the seal. So that is the story of that meme, which everybody's seen. <laughs> it's from the, the the illustration is from the Debrail Book of Hours. <laughs> That's awesome. That's my favorite sticker on all of Telegram everywhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what's up with dragons? No one has so, a good answer when I ask them. You know, I just don't buy anything. But I feel like you're going to have the greatest answer to what's up with dragons? <laughs> well, one, my dog. Um, they're, you know, I, I particularly like corgis and corgis from, from Wales. And Wales, you know, a symbol of Wales is the red dragon, like in the Merlin uh, prophecy. And corgis are clearly baby dragons. <laughs> Um, they're they're also they're also in the psalms in in the praises singing yeah. praises to god right the the, the draconis are singing praises to god along with the other creatures and um again on the blog there's a, a blog from a while ago called heat Dracones, where there's a number of little dragons that were in the ma the margins of one of the prayer books in the Regenstein collection at the university of chicago and i did a little cartoon version of them singing um, the, the praises, right? So where are they? Well, they're in the Psalms. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, I just, yeah. I mean, it's in Revelation. It's arguably in Job. I think there's another place in the Old Testament that dragons are depicted. But then in our modern culture, it's just such a mythical, they didn't exist at all. And then there's just so many, like you said, like, like on flags, on like, in like like um you know coat of arms knights like there's so much dragon imagery everywhere like the chinese have dragon myths you know singapore india europe south america apparently i don't know if that's true but i've heard that um but there ha it have to be real right or at least existed at one point i'm i'm fine with believing they were you know what the dinosaur <laughs> bones are um yeah that <laughs> yeah I mean, they're clear. They're, so the 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 you know the Drake our current sort of we're brainstorming it still and practicing our Spencerian stanzas. And we were just practicing in the in the chat this evening 
reading some Spencer when he's describing the dragon that the Red Cross Knight's going to fight. That you know, symbolically, they they you know they have that role of um, the, the 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 speller, right? I mean. I guess in in Tolkien, like Smaug, they can speak and they can mystify us. I mean, what in in the Beowulf dragon? The Beowulf dragon, he's he's not really evil. He's just a dragon. I mean, Tolkien talks about it as it's just a beast, right? It's a beast right, dragon. Yeah. And, there, and there are ways in which you know we as you know creatures, as human beings, mo monster slayers are big in world mythology and that you know man who is able to go up against the great beast and and kill it and protect his people you know probably some deep history in that of of the the the, the warriors who were and the heroes who were able to kill the monsters i mean could if he's like dragons but they're monster monster slayers in all of the mythologies that yeah. i can think of off the top of my head right um, and, and in Job, it's the Leviathan behemoth, and Leviathan is a water monster, behemoth is a land monster, I guess. Um, yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, what's Also, I wanted to ask you, what's up with the Sea Peoples? What's up with which? The Sea People. The Sea People? In what yeah. sense? Um, you posted the meme, the Bronze Age sea people there's like this mythical i don't know if they're mythical or real but like like um people in about 2000 or 1000 bc were so scared of the sea people this like mysterious group of people that would like come and raid villages and cities and then just like disappear am i that wrong goes, about this <laughs> uh well that that may be me sharing stuff from the sandwich press and the telegram um the sea peoples are the tension between the um in, in, in the 17th century, for example, the Sea Peoples are the Dutch, right? Um, pirates. They're, pirates, yeah. Uh, the, it's the difference between those of us, the, the people who live on the land and have settlements that last for generation after generation, and um, the maritime empires that obviously can pop in and out of ports, right? And there's that, you know, the line in, um, I think it's in Pirates of the Caribbean where jack is talking about what a ship is it's not you know it's not the things it's made of but it's freedom right that um sea empires for example the british or for example the united states of america <laughs> have uh, a mobility and a you know in it it works in our um sci-fi now right it's like the sea peoples are the ones that come and go out in and out of ports and they therefore they don't respect the land they just steal from it, and that's how you end up with the drug and the slave trade. Yeah. Uh, and and so I think you know the the ancient stories of the sea peoples clearly that ability to you know land grab stuff and and sail away is 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 perennial. Um, it, it's also interesting the the different kind of political systems that it makes, and I've been meditating on this a fair amount too. Uh, New Amsterdam, aka New York. Um, if you think about it, it's one highly cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan means, oh, of the world. The sea, the sea empires are cosmopolitan because they don't belong to the land. Yeah. And, and there, if you want, you know, sort of an Owen-style battery of the tension between settlement and sea, sea power, right? Well, that's an interesting point. Like, because they're so, quote-unquote, free, 
does that make them immoral? And then, like, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of, like, what about, like, every example? It seems to be, quote-unquote, immoral populations of raiders and, you know, it's like the Venetians, right? The the mm-hmm. Vikings, the mm-hmm. Phoenicians, the, you know, the British, the evil colonizers, the Euro- the American Empire. It's like, does that freedom lead to immorality? And then, like you said, the people of the land, like the simpletons or whatever you want to call them, like, the people with their roots in the ground, does that kind of lead more to a moral population? So Chesterton has a wonderful passage where he talks about the difference between the, the man who lives only in a village and the cosmopolitan. And we do this with airports now too, right? Airports have a similar sort of port character that the cosmopolitan, um, for him, every city is the same. And, and this, it's, this is Chesterton writing before there were airplanes, right? So it's like, hmm, Chris, you know, that for the, the cosmopolitan who's traveling from port to port to port to, you know, these, the, if you just think of airport cities, right? Convention center to convention center, hotel complex, to, right, it's right. everywhere is exactly the same, right? Same chains, Whereas, same restaurants, same landmarks, same. Right. Yeah. So the sea, the, the, you know, the sea peoples, port cities are like that. Um, the Hansa in Northern, in the North Sea in the, in the Baltic was similar, this trade, this trading complex of um, late medieval towns, which is, it's a fascinating study because they have no central anything, right? They don't even have agreed customs necessarily. Some of them share the same legal structures, some of them this, some of them. They were incredibly powerful precisely because they were, you know, sea peoples, right? So the sea peoples go from, you know, port to port and they don't really care about they're not going to put down roots or anything like that um and 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 they to them every place in the world is basically the same whereas the man who lives in the village this is chesterton right the man who lives in the village sees all of human life so it i think whether you know moral or immoral it definitely gives you this i mean when we talk about uprooted and rootlessness and and so forth you're not um i can only think in metaphor grounded uh, you're not committed yeah. in the way yeah. that the village, the person in the village is. Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> dichotomy, I guess. You need the Shire, right? It's like the, yeah. the Shire is appealing because it's like, this is where I belong. This is where I live. This is where my family is. You don't necessarily like everybody. You know, some hobbits are really irritating, right? So it's not, it's, it's, uh, that's an unfortunate feature of the port, the port f- fantasy, right? It's like you're going to get to pick all your friends and and only be with people you like. Sorry, right? If you actually live with your neighbors, and I, you know, it mattered that Jesus was saying love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbors are the ones that you fight over property lines with. Yeah. <laughs> your neighbors yeah. are not necessarily easy to get along with, right? They're the ones that you. And I have, you know, certain neighbors that I'm thinking of, right? That, that, <laughs> oh, I mean, they're Name real, them. right? Um, Name them. They're real people that Dox you have to, to continue to live with. And Chesterton makes that same point about, it's like, if you're born, um, you know, it's like, imagine you were like dropped down the chimney and had to get and you know, get along with whoever you found in the house. Well, that's basically what happens when you're born, right? You're just born into a family yeah. and you have whatever relatives you have. And you know, obviously, if you're in the cosmopolitan context where you can just leave, 
and go off and find the people that you know you can get along with and like and which nobody ever does because you end up fighting with them too but yeah. so that that sort of commitment to yes i'm going to keep getting you know i'm going to get along with the people that i find hard to get along with that's christian charity not being you know feeling compassionate for people that you've never met it's feeling compassionate for the person that you were arguing over the dog poop about <laughs> yeah. to pick a completely fictional example <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 totally that's random that you pulled that one out that's a <laughs> i know why would i think of that one don't look into it don't think about it too much um well speaking of your neighbors um what's up with the graveled history of chicago um i tend to pay attention just to my own neighborhood and talk to the people that i live with um how do you mean i mean what's what's interesting about chicago is because we're so completely graveled it's it's like vox talking about italy being pre-collapsed i think chicago was sort of pre-corrupt right so um it, it it has more local uh resilience partly because you know we are a variety of neighborhoods and I'll, I'll say that i mean what i think of myself different from i believe many of the people that teach, you know work where i do at the university is i've actually and i'm not completely unusual in having been here as long as i have but you know i live in the neighborhood i have a dog which means you end up in fights over the dog poop um you know i've gone to church here for for decades and um you know, the, having some sense of who you're actually living among is is really important. And Chicago has, you know, Chicago has a lot of, you know, real neighborhoods, I think. And people have lived here, you know, they stay, people stay in New York and live there for generations too, but Chicago is itself. It's, it's, it's not, you know, a, a, a small New York or a compact LA or something like that. We're all different cities. Yeah. It is like a city state. I'm a, so I'm originally yes. from Champaign, Illinois. Right. Right. So yeah. the university town. So it's right. like kind of a you know it's a little we it's always a wannabe Chicago in the middle of the cornfield. So it can never actually be that you know. <laughs> they right. want to get well, big. They want to be metropolitan, can't. but it's like they just can't do that. But it's like growing up, I it's always like you're literally if you're in the rest of the state of Illinois, you just look up at Chicago. And it's almost like a separate state. It's like there's Chicago and then there's the rest of us down here. <laughs> Even if it's like it's, Peoria, Bloomington, you know, there's big, fairly big cities, but it's just always the whole rest of the state looks up at Chicago, which just has all the politicians there, all the money there, all the influence, all the culture. And then there's just kind of the rest of us down here. So it's kind of like it feels like almost two states, even though it is one state, like one law. Well, that is that is typical of our great, you know, our great in the big sense of big cities, right? That they are kind of they're ports as well as locations in the in the state. And so, if you think about my comparison of the sea people and the you know the village, um, you guys are villagers. Yeah. <laughs> How and, dare and, you? And, and, and the, um, no, but the, but the, the port effect, and this is something I was just reading because I just started reading some Marshall McLuhan. I finally caught, caught up with the world. Um, uh, thinking about the the world the railways made and the, yeah. the kinds of connections. That, that Chicago is a rail city, right? It, the hub, it's the rail hub where they all 
brought all the stuff to be port to the Great Lakes, right? So there's no way there's no way you're going to compete with that because it's the transportation routes. Yeah. I mean, there's no way you know Champagne can compete with Lake Michigan, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But 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 the other thing is, I, I I know this from you know spending a lot of time driving through the Midwest my whole life and realizing how aspirational you know all of the the, the places are in the middle of middle it's like they're all named they're all named as they're like the startups of the 19th century right you're gonna go and you're gonna name your your town you know centerville and it's in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and you're gonna hope that you're going to attract people yeah. to come live there and you're gonna have your own school you're gonna have your own it's it's it's, it's what a people i think you know wax nostalgic about when they think about you know the america we wish we could be the small towns and stuff like that they were all startups yeah you, you're you're starting your little town and you're hoping to attract enough people to live there yeah, yeah i always loved um we would it's a small town outside of champagne called paris illinois right um can you imagine what <laughs> like it's like i wonder when they started that town they're like we're gonna be the paris of the midwest and it's like you go there now, it's like they have one Dairy Queen and two gas stations. <laughs> well, why not? And there's Paris, Texas, too. They made a movie about that. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. And yeah. The, there's a funny dichotomy there of like, uh, like you said, like the aspirations of like, we're going to be great. And it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, not. my husband and I were looking this up once that the, the most common town name, or is it street, town name or street name? these towns franklin yeah I, there's a, <laughs> it seems like there's a franklin in every state yeah yeah so franklin i i thought it was gonna be something like springfield because there's springfields between springfield. you know, all the way between here and yeah. texas right illinois missouri and the columbia um, too there's so, a lot of columbias like yeah cities and yeah but franklin franklin was franklin beat out washington i think right. which i found interesting yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. um well, yeah that's yeah, we don't have to. Uh, I kind of meant like, um, are you like, you're, so you're familiar with like the Tartaria conspiracies about like mm -hmm. that whole, you know, there was a history that's been covered up and rewritten and, mm -hmm. you know, pr basically like the, it's Atlantis is basically the summary of it, right? Um, but have you heard about all those theories about Chicago with that? That Chicago is actually a city that's 300 plus years old and not a city that's 100 years old ish? And that maybe the fires and the floods that happened were kind of an attempt to cover that up and destroy evidence and rewrite the history of the city. Yeah, I'm going to do a course next year, I think, on alt history. <laughs> yeah, that's um, awesome. Can I zoom in? Can I get a zoom link to that? Probably not. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I'll wear a mask no, because, in the Zoom just to, just to hear that. Yeah. Right. The, the, no, but I want to do a show. It's, 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 it's interesting how hard it is um, to convince people with evidence when you get into this level of storytelling, right? It's like the number of people who spent time trying to find King Arthur yeah. is, you know, continuous since the 12th century. Right, yeah. And, <laughs> continue on. And, and the, the, no, so I heard Owen talking about, I get, I think Owen, Owen seems to be moving on. I hadn't watched him for a long time and you know, I was watching the Canal Reeves episodes recently and, and um, he, he seems not to be worrying about the flat earth as much as he used to and and now he's i'm not sure where he is on tartaria but anyway um that 
I so I looked I last six months or a year ago I looked at the book that I think that all came out of right and one it's 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 a Russian's theory of history which it could be very interesting because you know whatever happened in Russia during the Soviet period they didn't necessarily have access to all of the scholarly work that we were doing in history and so maybe things got a bit scrambled right Tartaria it, yes it's on the old maps but it's the Mongols <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, you know, it's it's That's interesting the, to me the, that the deeper this, you get into Tartaria, you start realizing it wasn't even actually Tartaria. <laughs> it no, just it's, is la it's labeled on the old name for it. Yeah. Because you know, there's the, the old name for the Mongols is the Tartars, right? Yeah, right so Tartaria yeah. was is the Mongols, and so you know, it's covering Eurasia, which I you know I do find interesting in the sort of premise of oh yes, you know, there could have been people that came um, to what we call the Americas from the other way. I, I mean, they did, right, we, right. Well, I don't know whether we think this or not, right? It's like, the, I, I, I lose track of which version of pre ancient prehistory we're yeah. working with anymore. Um, yeah. What I found what I found interesting about the mud floods and the World Fair and the orphan trains and, and all of that was, one, I do think it, it it's witnessing to a feeling of vast rupture that people feel we're living through and I think there are other, you know, there's technical, technological reasons for that. The the way the media that we've we have in the world, which is what Marshall McLuhan was talking about, the effect of the electronic media. He's talking about this in the '60s, and it's still playing out, right? The degree to which we lose place. I mean, to, if, you know, what whatever Zuckerberg is doing, renaming Facebook Meta, right? He's like, <laughs> it's gonna even, not even gonna have faces anymore. We're gonna, tr you know, it's like we're gonna transcend yeah. all. Yeah books and faces and location and identity and everything and just go you know go meta uh that <laughs> it it's it's we we you know we can it's a similar thing that happened i, I mentioned with doomsday book and you know king, uh, king arthur uh, william the conqueror comes in and wipes out the whole culture basically right he he, he wipes out the um the nobility of the anglo-saxon uh community um he also therefore you know and he replaces in, in the monasteries and such people like anselm of canterbury who's he's actually italian but he's coming from normandy um he he replaces a lot of the high-ranking high churchmen with norman appointments um what had been a you know very flourishing old english literary community vanishes Although we do have some texts from the early 12th century that, you know, some of the monks still were able to, to work in Old English, but it just dies, right? And it's, it, and, and, and then out of this, in the 1130s comes William of Malmesbury trying to, no, William, Jeffrey Monmouth, not William's mom, Jeffrey Monmouth basically inventing a history for the Britons which he says he got from an old book and such and so forth, and it may be Welsh and things, but you know, periods of incredible rupture do generate these these sort of alt stories, right? Because you're trying to re-anchor yourself in something. Um, so, I, you know, to me, the Tartaria narrative. I mean, it, one, if it's if it's Russian, then that that's interesting of itself, right? Um, but that it, it got you know the foothold that it did in, in the internet conversation. It's people don't know how to tell what's true. And we don't know how to sift the evidence. And we have trouble in the middle, you know, the medieval evidence sometimes, because how do you trust what's written when? And 
how do you test it? And if, if in fact you're losing con you're losing confidence in your experts and your authorities and the mechanisms that we've used to figure out chronologies. Best yeah. of times, worst of times. Never mind that. <laughs> we, we don't. We we don't. And, and the thing is, we're we're you know, it was the mid nineteenth century that invented a lot of these chronology, chronological tests, and you know, paleography and diplomatic history, and you know how to date the documents by the different scripts and hands and things like that. I'm not there yet. I don't <laughs> medieval the medieval, you know, narrative that we have now is but I mean it could certainly be be intensified and um complicated the more local you get in terms of how much exchange there was across which regions and so forth. We're in the story. We're still <laughs> telling it. I love like the vast difference between like you know, I ask a question about like, what are your thoughts on Tartaria? And you're like, okay, let's go back, like, let's study the history and like, let's really analyze things. And my, like, my <laughs> answer would be like, hey, I got a couple cool, like, YouTube crazy people that you should listen to. <laughs> I did. Well, I listened to Mikowski, right? And the, and the World Fairs. Can we I send did you all, some we... links for just some weirdos <laughs> that spend their life making up theories? Uh, no, the thing is, I, I, music on YouTube. <laughs> I really, I no, I respect what they're trying to do, and I and I also understand how you can end up down rabbit holes, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and you find and what like, you want to believe, and you know stuff that supports your narrative instead of just actually going off of what the evidence is. You're picking and choosing right. the evidence to suit your wants instead of just following the, the evidence where it leads. There is no such thing, right? Because I mean, this, I guess this that's is true, the. Yeah. No, it's the problem of doing history. It's it's it's, it's like be all. Well, it's going to be it's going to be story focused. Um. So, I mean, this this is where we are in, in in my professional field right now. It's like we don't know what we care about anymore. It's 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 fairly sort of traumatic and complicated because the profession of history was developed in the nineteenth century as as we now practice it, um, particularly out of you know, Europe's desire for understanding nations. And um, I was just reading something fairly persuasive talking about nations as idols, which they definitely were, right? It's sort of anything you'll die for that's other than, you know, um, Christ is is an, an idol. But and one of the ways you make idols is telling good stories about them, right? So the, the original professions, original professional medieval history in particular, but you know, history in general was, was out of the desire to tell the stories of these entities called nations. And of course, we don't really want to tell them that way anymore because we've, you know, they've been complicated and, and challenged and who, I don't feel like I belong to that one and, and so forth. But right now, you know, which, what do we belong to? How do we tell a story whether we belong to? I think the Tartarian one is probably appealing to people because like when Owen got excited about it, he was like, I think we were here all along. I mean, that's a very interesting <laughs> response to say, yeah. we belong to the land, right? Yeah. We didn't come from somewhere else. We belong to this land, we were here. So I think it's, it's, it's a desire for belonging, which is, yeah, you know, and, and you know, now my colleagues in academia have, you know, taken to declaring, you know, we're on the land that, you know, actually I heard it on, I heard it on Friday when we inaugurated a new president at Chicago, University of Chicago. It's like, um, apparently our, our, our university is on land that was two different peoples, right? One, I've forgotten 
not the Illinois, because that wouldn't be the right name, but in the Potawatomi, right? And it's like, they, they, you know, they originally, you know, lived here. And it's like, okay, either you just let, you know, the tribe have free tuition. So that that's mm -hmm. like, great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Find the members of the tribe and let them come yeah. here to school. That's, that's okay. <laughs> um, but, but it is also this, this deep, deep longing to know where we are, right? We don't know where we are. We're on this landscape that's been ridden over by streets that have no relationship to history. Yeah. No, you know, we have, we don't really remember why anything is called what it is. We keep renaming it all so we forget. And you can see that. It's like, I think maybe you could say this is the flip side of people's sort of weird relationship to our past right now is saying we want to belong somewhere. We yeah, want to belong to the land. Can we stop living? Can we stop living on the ports? I want to have a home somewhere <laughs> and I want to be where I want it to be somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere that's going to stand the test of time and carry on for generations. Yeah. Right. So Tartaria, <laughs> like the you cathedrals. Know, yeah. Of course, Tartaria is appealing. And of course, the idea is like, oh, there were buildings here before. If only yeah. we actually belonged. Yeah. Right. It, I, so psychologically, I find it, it's a fascinating phenomenon, these, these efforts to create a deeper narrative. Yeah, I think there's some things, some part of it too, that's like they took something from us or something was lost. They took our story. Like this feeling that like um, we once were great and now we're not, which can lead you to like despair. Like, oh man, now we're just dumb, stupid slaves. Or it could be like, let's reclaim it. So I think even that like right. mindset can drift you into two different directions. Like, are you, oh, we lost something some, or something was taken from us? Uh, man, that sucks. Or is it like, let's go find it. Let's go reclaim that. Um, I kind of find that part of the whole conspiracy thing interesting. Well, it's, it's wanting to have it. a story that you can feel meaningfully a part of. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it, 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 make, it makes a lot <laughs> profoundly of profoundly put <laughs> right and and the um, thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and and you know and so that's you know the the sort of we was uh, tearing down the statues or telling us all that you know whatever I mean telling you you have no history you're the bad guys um, I mean, we're all the bad guys we killed Christ okay <laughs> with our yeah. sins right and so get a grip um but the you know the american history could be so much richer if we were actually paying attention to the landscape that we're living in instead of trying to run away from the story we wish we weren't a part of we're all part of this this story and nobody gets to be the good guys in it um except the saints which is all saints today. So it's all saints today. <laughs> they get to be the good all, guys. All of them today, yeah. All, all, of the, all of the saints get to be the good guys. The rest of us are sinners. Yeah. For different awesome. reasons, right? And and the, dra awesome. and the Draco Alchemicus has sucked us all in, and we all have our addictions and temptations and pride and sins and, yeah. <laughs> Right on. Um, so one of my last questions for you, actually Mount now like makes sense with what we were talking about, but would you rather have a castle or an airship? <laughs> see, see, and then Which is man, it? yeah, exactly. Like basically it's like, I didn't even think about that. That wasn't what I was going in, but now it's like, man, that's deep. 
Because then that's kind of it that is same premise. exactly it. Would you rather it's have exactly a foundation it. on the land or would you be traveling, you know? Man. Right. Man. <laughs> I impress myself sometimes, you know? <laughs> it's rare, but, it, you know. I'm not answering that question on the grounds that it's a trick question. <laughs> well, and, and, and recognizing that at some time we wanted both right and yeah. and well, the not, the tension the tension between those two is quite um story generating how's that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i'm a castle man myself or uh, a, a man of the land and not a man of the sea <laughs> definitely um, i know i've been both i know i have family that have been yeah, both right same, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've tested both. I've tasted both, and I definitely now know that I am a castle man or a land man, <laughs> not an airship man or a ship man. Um, <laughs> um, well, so uh, I guess I always like to ask: Do you have any questions for me? Um, well, you've told me more about yourself in in in, in answering our questions than I <laughs> knew. Yeah, I, sorry. Um, take the mic mic out of your hand. I guess what what are your hopes for your your um, live stream series? What are you seeking? Um, well, I'm always seeking truth. That's kind of it. Um, my live stream is kind of just a documentation of my life and my pursuit of God. Um, okay. Live stream number one was actually the day, literally recorded the day of um, me packing my car up and literally just driving across the country and moving to Nashville with like no plan, no job, no house. Just like literally like I'm homeless now. I'm going to leave California and just go figure it out. I feel God bringing me to Nashville, Tennessee for some reason. And so ever since it's been 71 episodes of me just kind of like talking about books I'm reading and movies I'm reading and thoughts I have and topics I'm discussing with friends or things I've, you know, encountered in Bible studies and then also just life updates. Um, and so I kind of just like that general theme going of just what's on my mind. I'm going to prepare a little theme and a little topic, do a little bit of research and present it or do a little book report or, uh, you know, kind of just talk about what the zeitgeist is of the culture that day. Um, mm -hmm. But just, yeah, just kind of like a, it's, it's almost just a, uh, diary a public diary of my pursuit of god and my pursuit of righteousness and then advice that i learned along the way so yeah it's kind of it's a very american story the, the road trip the road the yeah. road trip in search of well, i don't know if you know my story but like the long story short is that i was born and raised by atheists so i was just born of the world like just so lost like i just right. thought god was fake my whole life you know so, of course, I mean, what's the inevitable result of that? It's like just constant rebellion against God, just ignorance of God, and just your life is just chaos and meaningless, and you just become a pleasure seeker and emotionally unstable, and you get up and you get up to, you just get up to no good. You know, you're just doing evil whether you know it or not. And then, you know, course of events happens, God taps me on the shoulder, wakes me up, and so ever since, it's just been like, okay, God's real. You know, Christ is clearly the way to him. What do I do? <laughs> what do I do now, God? And so I have the faith, but it's like, what do you do with that? You know, so right. I, I mean, right. the faith is just there. And I feel God call me and pull me in different directions. But then it's like this pursuit of what do I do now? How do I like make disciples? How do I 
help other people? You know, how do I ensure that I'm going to heaven? And then how do I also make heaven crowded? <laughs> so my life okay. has been this weird, <laughs> this weird, like three years of that, like just how does someone who's never been to church before, who has like no knowledge, who doesn't really have like a community of Christians around him, pursue God. Um, and so the live stream actually has ended up being kind of like a weird insight into someone going through that. <laughs> Not someone who's well-trained or well-experienced in the church. And then someone who genuinely has faith and is who is seeking God and trying to help others do the same, I guess, or inspire others to do the same. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah. <laughs> Making yeah. me part of your part of your quest. Yeah, I love it. Great. <laughs> um, I have one final question, but before that, do you want to do any plugs or shout outs? Like find, follow, subscribe? Um, so find me on Unauthorized TV. Yeah. At both Logos and History and the Forge of Tolkien. Um, complicated to subscribe. You have to be like, you know, no, not secret handshake. We don't have those. <laughs> um, Yet. You have to subs no, subscribe <laughs> and then get the password to the actual main platform. Um, my blog is Fencing Bear at Prayer. Um, and I've been writing on that since 2008. It's been a bit of a hiatus over the last few months, um, partly because I'm finishing a poem that my common my dragon dragons from the dragon common room and i've written called aurora berry alice which is a grail quest for bears and i say they 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 find they find the grails well they find they find the the, the object of their quest in the light in antarctica and the the penguins have to help them it's complicated, <laughs> yeah. but it's also illustrated. So we I'm have, in, we have lovely, 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 outstanding medieval style drawings by hand-drawn bear. Um, wow, yeah. So it's, 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 gonna, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. She's done amazing work and it's going to be the best Christmas present you can give to your 11 year old who needs a, a Christian story. Or grown-ups can read it too. <laughs> we, we were aiming. We were aiming for kids, and I have I have reliably audience tested it on two two um, homeschooled Catholic um, boys, and they loved it. So yeah. we're ready. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> coming coming out in the in the next in the next month or so. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely getting a copy. <laughs> it's like marketed towards children and dummies like Sean. Uh. <laughs> hey, if you can answer all the riddles in the book that, you know, the bears have to answer some riddles that the, the, the even the penguins don't have the answers to. So. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Love that. Um, my last final, final question is, did you have a good time tonight? Yes, I did. Thank yeah. you for the questions. <laughs> awesome. That's good to hear. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Great. Follow Sean on social media at Sean B. Planet. His podcast audio is on the Sean B. Planet channel on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. His videos are on YouTube and BitChute. Live streams on DLive and Twitch. Blogs, links, and other stuff can be found at SeanBlanet.com.